This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hello, I'm Lale Arikoglu, and this is Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who's curious about the world. Like many people, I'm not really a fan of Valentine's Day and all its forced expectations. It's just not really my scene. And here on this podcast, we're avoiding the cliches. The heart-shaped food, expensive dinner reservations, and useless presents. But we do have a gift on offer. We're lucky to have a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst who has deep insights into all things love and travel. She's Dr. Orna Gorolnik, the host of Showtime's documentary series, Couples Therapy. And the good news is... She believes travel is beneficial to a relationship. Travel is like extremely important and it can offer like a great space for growth and change. I think couples do amazing work sometimes when they get out of their habits. Eating different kinds of food, anything that gets you out of like a ritualistic, habitual way of thinking and behaving can open up new ways of thinking, new ways of hearing, new ways of understanding, offering new parts of yourself, getting connected to parts of you that you're not usually in touch with. And that allows people to get in touch with their better parts so that they can really work something out or find a good space within themselves where they can give more or hear more. Travel can often feel like an escape from reality. It's easier to be your better self when you're, say, eating a gelato on the Piazza San Marco or zipping down a ski slope. Or, if you're like me, falling into the sleepy rhythm of moving from the beach to the bar every day. If you're travelling solo, you might feel a bit more spontaneous when it comes to meeting someone new. But that can also put a lot of pressure when you return to the doldrums of everyday life on the other side of a trip. Orna Gorelnik's couples therapy shows that simply stepping into her office is a journey of its own kind. So you've been travelling all around, talking about your show, Couples Therapy, which is on Showtime. Tell me and tell listeners a little bit about the show. I am fascinated to know how you find the couples. I just show up and they're at my door but we have a fantastic team of people each season they interview they get probably like a thousand couples and then a few hundred get kind of 
initially interviewed and eventually like a few people are selected to actually do the season. I'm really interested because you can feel so vulnerable when you're in front of a camera at the best of times. And then to put yourself in a vulnerable position of having to talk about your relationship and be so a moment of such honesty. Do you find that the couples you speak with adapt and get used to the camera? Does the camera become their friend? First of all, the way the office is designed is when you're in the office, you don't see cameras. They have this brilliant kind of set design where you're just in a beautiful office that feels like just a lovely, cozy place to be, a very safe space to be. And neither I nor the couples see the cameras. Orna's job requires her to be a keen observer and listener, skills she credits to having lived in multiple countries as an American Israeli. She describes herself as a wanderer. I was born in the States and then moved to Israel as a kid and then lived in a few other places and then ultimately came back to the States for grad school. And I also come from a family where people travel a lot and I've always traveled a lot. My kids travel a lot. I mean, it's like... It's sort of in our blood. It's also part of being like Israeli. I mean, Israelis travel like crazy. I think both living in different countries and switching between languages and between cultures, and then in a way living long enough that I've seen each of these cultures change. Israel's changed so much, and the United States has changed so much too. Again, I've lived in other places in Europe. You... Grew up for most of your life in Israel. Now you live in the US. And I pulled a quote that I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but that you sort of described the experience of moving between countries as kind of putting you in a position where you're always on some level watching and observing and trying to make sense of what you're seeing, which was very good preparation for being an analyst. I think it happens to most people that travel and switch between cultures and languages is that you never take your own discourse as the ultimate gospel and the ultimate truth. In a way, you always know that there's a different way. There's a different way to say things. There are different habits that are the right norms. There's a different way to think about things. There are different ideologies that will then shape how you experience any one event. So nothing is just the ultimate truth, which first of all makes it easy then to understand why, like, Two people in a couple can have some difficulty understanding each other or working from different assumptions. And then to try to kind of imagine how to translate and bridge between and compare. And I think it makes one less dogmatic. And I think that's one of the reasons people love traveling so much, which is that it immediately disembeds them or pulls them out of their most immediate experience and exposes them to something new and different. And in that sense, changes them. As someone who also grew up in a country outside of the US and then moved here and ultimately found their current partner here, what cultural differences have you observed when it comes to relationships between Israel and the US or other countries you've lived in? And also how people talk about their relationships? It's, I don't like stereotypes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can say pretty obvious things, which is that Americans have a way of 
at least on the surface, wrapping their interactions with, in a way, a more friendly, patient wrapping. So in a certain way, conversations are easier for Americans. There's a certain expectation of friendliness. Israelis, on the other hand, they're not friendly, but they're very, very direct. So they talk about the things that matter to them with a lot more self-disclosure and directness. They get to the point and it makes it in a way more heated, but they get to the heart of the matter more. It's funny that you describe those two dichotomies because it's as a British person, I feel like I'm deeply unconfrontational and also unable to talk about my feelings. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that when I lived in England, it I mean, I ultimately left, I could not actually decode what people mean. Yeah. It, there was so <laughs> much coding, repression, kind of a certain kind of subversive humor that made it very difficult for me to understand what people actually want. Yeah, there's like three different layers you have to break down through before you get to the yeah. meaning. My um, aunt lived in Tel Aviv, so I got to go to Israel a few times and spend lots of time with her and her friends. And the Israeli directness was something I came to know and love. When I was reading the New Yorker profile of you that you choose to not be particularly forthcoming with your own personal life because it's not particularly helpful in your work. But I am interested to know, as someone who grew up traveling and clearly it's a big part of your life, what purpose does it serve for you now, today? Yeah, I have an insatiable wanderlust and want to travel all the time. It's always like a huge learning experience, like learning about a different culture. How people live, the politics of the place, the kind of things that matter to people. You know, I love going into bookstores. Even if I don't understand the language, just seeing what people are reading. Beauty beauty of a different place, of a different country or a different continent has like a huge influence over me. I find it very nourishing, inspiring. I think it's just the learning and the newness and the surprise that a different place introduces. It just opens up a space inside me and it's inspiring. It's I learn from it, I grow from it, and I come back both nurtured by it, but also kind of open in a way to the people I work with to hear them differently somehow. It sounds like travel helps you understand people better and yeah. the people you work with. Yeah, travel opens you up. After the break, how to negotiate your differences on vacation and whether springing a surprise trip on your other half is actually ever a good idea. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff 
wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Since a therapy session can start with anything that the couple wants to bring up, the format of Orna's show opens up many conversations. And there's an episode where there's a couple and one half of the couple surprises the other with a dominatrix, from what I recall. Right. Obviously very different from a surprise trip, but can surprises ever be good? Or are you always, is it a self-serving gift in a relationship? Does a surprise trip actually work out? Should you give someone one? Surprises can be wonderful and surprise trips can be wonderful. I mean, it depends on who the people are. I mean, some people, it's easy for them to shift gears and they love the idea that someone else thought about them in this way that they didn't. Some people can find surprises super flattering, like a real gift, a real give not a selfish give, but a real give that someone will think about all the details and not bother them with it and just present them with something wonderful. But, you know, you need a certain level of flexibility to be able to move with a surprise and not to need to be in control and to know in advance. Some people are more rigid or have a lot of trouble with it and they find surprises overwhelming and impossible to cope with. So it really varies between one person and the next. But I, I'd say some surprises are fantastic. I do. I have someone who does love surprises. Often I think in a partnership, there's one person who loves traveling and the adventure that comes with travel a lot more than the other half. What's your advice for someone who's in a relationship where they love to travel and it's a huge part of their life and their partner isn't interested in it? I mean, all differences between couples are a challenge. This one can sometimes be quite a challenge because it's big. When people like to travel, it's it's an important part of them. And the reason people like to travel is they like to be exposed to new things. And people who don't like to travel, it's a big difference. It's not just, you know, do I like, um, I don't know, pears versus apples. It's like a big part of the psyche if you like to travel versus not. It it connects to deep issues. The way I would try to think about it is to see, to try out 
what works better. Is that like a kind of difference where it's good to work towards doing things separately? So the person who likes to travel gets to travel a lot, but not with their partner. Or is it the kind of difference where meeting in the middle actually will promote growth for both people? So that the person who might be anxious about traveling or not like it might grow to benefit more from travel, more than they expected. Do they need their partner to do certain things to make it easier for them, like to be the one that's planning it or to plan the kind of travel that will accommodate the other person's aversion? What are they averse to? What is the issue? Do they need to get more involved in the planning so they feel more comfortable? I mean, does the person who likes to travel a lot, are they, I don't know, avoiding something else by traveling? I mean, is there a way to find a compromise? Or is it the kind of difference that it's best to just let people do their separate things? And I guess there is also value in having something that's yours alone in a relationship, right? That, you know, if Absolutely. travel is your thing, you can go yeah. off and enjoy it. Yeah. Is that a hard thing, do you think, for couples to communicate to each other in a way that doesn't feel hurtful? That they have something that the other person doesn't have to be a part of or that they don't want them to be a part of? Couples get tripped up in communicating about their differences it's easy for people to interpret difference as somehow something frightening or potentially insulting or injurious or rejecting. It's hard for people to just see difference in a neutral way. So, you know, I can imagine someone saying, well, why don't I travel on my own? Someone else somehow receiving it as a rejection or, oh, you don't want my company or you don't want to do what I want to do. Like It's easy to interpret things as hurtful or insulting. So I think going about it gingerly. And trying to communicate where you're coming from and keeping in mind how the other might interpret it and being patient. Understanding misinterpretations would be helpful. Do you think that booking a trip together is a way to sometimes create a space to solve things or work through things? You know, I feel like it's quite a common scenario when a relationship's getting a little bit challenging and people decide to, you know, take some time away for themselves together. Absolutely. Why do you think that has value? First of all, because distractions are removed and people have time. They might be exposed to beauty and to things that are aesthetically pleasing, whether it's nature or art or a beautiful city. I think getting away from habits, the habits of daily living, whether it's work or just one's rituals, I think that's why travel is like, extremely important and it can offer like a great space for growth and change. I think couples do amazing work sometimes when they get out of their habits. Mm -hmm. 
Is it a challenge then when you return back to the doldrum of everyday life? Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, it's interesting. In the season that we recorded, not the season now, the season before that's coming out in April, there's exactly that. There's a couple that were going through a lot and then they took a, a big safari trip to Africa and had like a profound experience with each other and reconnected and everything. And then they got back and they're like, life was right back there and they were right back in their thing. But with a kind of a connection, a memory of what just recently happened, how things can be different between them and the thing about them that really connects them. So, yeah. As you were saying this, I was thinking, I was like, huh, yeah, I guess there is that phrase, like the honeymoon period is over and that's it's kind of that. <laughs> right. There's a reason for it. After the break, responses to our request for listener stories about love and travel. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. David had insisted I join him on a literacy project based in a fort, which is in the far eastern part of Zambia. I, a smartly dressed non-camping girl, was not interested. I declined the job several times until I had no choice but to go. Our project was on an encampment set up on the banks of the Luanga River. We had each our own tents and shared a communal camp kitchen with the rest of the project's team. Little were we to know that an encounter with elephants would change everything and set us on a course to romance and marriage. The local camp staff had warned us that there were elephants in the area and that we should never leave unattended food in the kitchen as it would attract them. Sure enough, when preparing lunch on the first day, an elephant came into the camp and helped herself to all the fresh vegetables I had bought earlier. That night, we diligently packed our food away for safekeeping in the camp storeroom. All, that is, except for one onion. The elephants returned to the camp that night at about 2 a.m. They walk almost silently, their big feet padding gently over the ground. One whiff of that pesky onion brought the whole herd into our camp kitchen. Our tents were lined up beside the kitchen, and for 30 minutes of shock, 
and all. All we could do was peep out through an open zip and watch six or seven elephants go on a rampage until they found that onion. They trashed the kitchen, smashing every plate, cup and bowl I had personally bought. After picking up all the broken kitchenware, we both spent the rest of the night huddled up by the camp reception, absorbing what had just happened and wondering if the elephants would reappear. It was during these moments that I saw David as just David, not a work colleague. We both set our guard down. We had a common purpose to survive camp life among the wild animals. From then on, each time one of us picked up a cracked ball, a handleless cup, we would both laugh so hard as it seems so funny now. David made me dinner the next night. A French-style chicken dish cooked in wine with garlic, but without any fresh vegetable. It was our first friendly meal together, the first of many. The elephants had unlocked something in both of us. From that day, I never walked alone around the camp. David was always there by my side, just in case I bumped into an elephant. In the evenings, the sunset would always sit together and we spent more time cooking together at the camp kitchen. While one cooked, the other watched out for the naughty elephants. Our experience with the elephants bonded us and set us up on a journey of romance that led to our marriage. And the moral from this tale is, if he doesn't say, I told you so, after the elephants have trashed your china, keep your eye on him. He may turn out to be the man for you. responding to your request for stories about breakups during a trip. And I had the ultimate breakup. My husband told me that he wanted a divorce. The one and only time so far I've gone to Paris. It apparently was prompted by a book I gave him to read on the plane that was popular at the time, which was Mitch Albom's Tuesdays with Maury, because he was constantly complaining that he needed something to read on the plane, but he needed something that was short and sort of easy to get through. So I bought him this on the recommendation of a male friend at work, and I was surprised to see him really get into it on the plane ride over to Paris. And after we landed and had a bite to eat and we were walking back to our hotel, I asked him what he thought of the book and he gave it rave reviews. I was so happy to hear this because that wasn't usually his style. And he continued by saying that it really got him to thinking about a lot of important topics and what's important in his life. And based upon all of that, he told me within seven hours of landing in Paris, that he wanted a divorce. So I went back to the hotel, packed up my stuff, and left the next day. 
I knew the marriage and my dreams of a romantic trip were just ruined. And there was just no way I could stay. It wasn't even a possibility for me. Besides the hurt and resentment I was feeling for him at telling me where and when he did, I just couldn't imagine enjoying myself on any basis. I couldn't think of any kind of consolation prize that would make it okay to stay. Travel is something that is emotional for me. No matter who I'm with or even if I'm by myself, it just connotes connection, discovery, rich experiences. And for him, he's just more practical. He thought since we'd already prepaid for a lot of the hotel and the excursions, leaving would be just a irresponsible thing to do. And he stayed and, as far as I know, enjoyed himself. As I've been thinking about this, I guess I honestly have to say that I didn't want to stay because I didn't want to ruin Paris. I already thought my marriage was ruined. I had never been to Paris. And I just thought that if I stayed under the circumstances, it wasn't doing myself or Paris any favors. It was sort of a disservice to the city that I dreamed about being in. I wanted to preserve it for the future when I could enjoy it. I'm not really sure if that's selfish, but I have to say I don't regret it. This happened over 20 years ago. I've never been back to Paris, but I am finally planning that long-anticipated trip as a solo traveler. Since the pandemic, I've sort of had an attitude of, if not now, when? And I'm looking forward to my trip to Paris this year in 2023. Travel can be a test for even the strongest of relationships. I mean, who hasn't had an argument with a loved one in an airport, or during hour six of a very long car ride, or over directions in a new city, like I did in Athens one time? Sometimes it can also just be spending just too much time together. Travelling as a couple on a trip, there is sometimes... Even if you are in the best place your relationship has ever been, such a forced intimacy. Yeah, you can get sick of your traveling companion in a big way. Right. I mean, I've stayed in hotel rooms where there's no door on the bathroom because it's some crazy design feature. And I'm always just like, look, I love my husband, but I do not want to hear him going to the toilet on my like romantic trip. Um, I understand. Is there a way to kind of productively have alone time on those sorts of trips? It's hugely important. I think that should be like a thing people always agree to in advance, which is we've got to make sure we take some time to spend apart. It, hugely important. Yeah, because no matter how much you love a person, whether it's your love partner, your kid, your best friend, I mean, day in, day out, seeing them like under the stressors of travel, no time to yourself, none of your usual habits that ground you in in your own mind. I mean, you're going to turn on your, each other at some point. I mean, you're going to get sick of each other at some point, And it's very important to schedule some time alone. There's just no way around it. I feel like what you just described was like the last couple of years for a lot of couples (laughs) yeah yeah so time alone on a trip is maybe more important than ever yes seems like sane advice 
Look out for season four of Couples Therapy out soon. The first three seasons are currently available on streaming and on-demand platforms for all Showtime subscribers. Next week, we're speaking with an intrepid Brazilian journalist, Eliane Brum, who moved from the big city and built a recycled house in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, and whose noisiest neighbors are howler monkeys. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna. And follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Foreign Policy, I'm Rena Nainen, the host of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Over the past few years, we've looked at how women around the world are changing societal norms to increase their economic power. This season, we're focusing completely on girls, how they're pushing for a brighter, more powerful future, and what the rest of us can do to set them up for success. Join us for stories about girl power, young women who are fighting for change, to give themselves a chance to live a life of their own choosing. That's season six of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, wherever you get your podcasts.